Planning a trip to one of the great national parks? L.L. Bean went to the experts at the National Park Foundation to get the inside scoop on which parks are the best to visit in each season. Whether you're looking for outstanding scenery, smaller crowds, or unique activities, L.L. Bean, be an outsider. To check out the full list of recommendations, visit llbean.com explore. Welcome to The Final Four is Not on the Schedule. I'm your host, Eric, alongside with expert analyst Rod. Thanks for joining us on the best MSU basketball podcast featuring an in-depth recruiting, game matchup, and post-game analysis. We dive deep to give you the best tools to enjoy the Spartans and impress your friends and family. Hey, everybody. It's Eric alongside Rod here, back again with another Big Ten preseason analysis. We've got number 13, which is Minnesota. They struggled last year. Uh, ben Johnson was a first-time coach, or, and boy, he inherited a really lousy team. Or actually, it's almost you could argue he inherited no team. He had to assemble his entire roster on the fly with transfers. It was as it was as scorched earth as anything the Big Ten seen since Tom Crean's first season at Indiana. He was just left with nobody. I mean, he had he had the guys he had. One, Isaiah Innan got hurt, didn't play at all. He had another, Eric Curry, who I think people didn't believe would play, who ended up playing and was a big help to them. But at, when he got that job, now he's he's a Minnesota native, just to give people a little background. Minnesota native, I was actually a guy Tom Izzo recruited once upon a time. Um, he had been an assistant at Minnesota, but he had left and I believe was an assistant at Xavier before he got the head coaching job at Minnesota, beating out some guys who were already established head coaches. So it was a hell of a, a hell of a um, get for him to walk into that job. And, you know, the university of Minnesota may be taking a bit of a flyer. Um, but yeah, he just had, when he walked into the coach's office there, he had not much of anything resembling a roster. And he replaced Richard Patino, who I think I was shocked that he lasted as long as he did. I felt that he should have been gone yes. two years before he was. And I don't know if he was just surviving on his name or I don't know, but it's, it just seemed like a team that was going, had it was spinning its wheels and never really improving. And yet he, he was still there the whole time. I used to annually for a while talk about this in the, when we were doing these kind of things in the preseason, like, is this it <laughs> for Richard Patino? But you know what I think? helped him a little bit is he had he had that 2018-19 season where it was not totally out of the blue people knew that there was some talent there but I don't think there was necessarily a definitive expectation that they'd be an NCAA tournament team and they were and they actually won a first round game if you remember Michigan State Cassius's junior year the year they went to the final four they got Minnesota in the second round, the round of 32. So they actually got to the tournament and won a game. I think if they had not made the tournament that year, he would have been gone. But making it bought him the next year, which ended up you know, without a tournament. Um, and then he got the COVID year, and that was it. It had finally, it had finally reached its end. But I agree with you. If his, I don't know whether it was his last name or inertia. Whatever it was, but um, 
you would think other guys would have got other guys have gotten a quicker hook at Minnesota too in that job. Not, yeah. Yeah. And, and the biggest thing to me, and I've banged the drum on this for years and years and years, what used to make Minnesota a more credible program, a program that maybe once every four or five years was capable of cycling up into big 10 title contention. And I'm talking about back to the seventies from the seventies to the nineties. That's what Minnesota was. They weren't an annual NCAA tournament team, especially not with smaller fields, but they could be counted on to cycle up. And usually when they did, it was on the backs of really good Minnesota players, Kevin McHale, they would, recruit from other states too they certainly hit michigan in the 70s um but kevin McHale, randy brewer was a great seven foot three center they had in the early 80s um you go into the late 80s with another uh detroit kid willie burton was the the year steve smith's group went to the sweet 16 and got jobbed against georgia tech minnesota actually got to the elite eight that year then clem haskins had that team that went to the final four with bobby jackson at the point courtney james you know a lot of good tough players minnesota that's the program minnesota was they would cycle up every few years but part of what made that happen is they were able to largely put a fence around the state of minnesota so if you were a good player coming out of the state of minnesota the odds were pretty strong that you were going to stay home What's hurt Minnesota in the last, say, 20 years, and this was true of a guy I think is that was actually a really good coach in Tubby Smith. He struggled with it as well. But as the state of Minnesota has actually gotten better as a talent-producing area, and it has, Minnesota's ability to keep even their fair share of those guys at home has declined. They've been terrible at that. Bo Ryan does not have the success he had at Wisconsin without being able to raid the state of Minnesota. A ton of his really, really good players were Minnesota kids that in the 80s would never have gotten out of the state. But they did. Um, they have during this era. Uh, I think for Ben Johnson and for anybody else who might follow him as the head coach of Minnesota, you need to focus everything you've got at keeping a fair share of that elite talent home. I could just go the last few years. You've had ch guys like Chet Holman, Jalen Suggs. So that's two, not just lottery picks, high lottery picks, top five guys got within the last three years, got out of the state of Minnesota and Minnesota was never in on them. Seriously, never had a chance with either one. And by the way, Chet Holman's dad played at Minnesota. That's how bad it is. That his dad's alma mater never had a shot. So that's got to change. But as opposed to some of these other programs in the lower echelon of the Big Ten, a Nebraska, a Penn State, a Northwestern, where they were a never, a never were, they've never really been good. Minnesota has some basketball tradition, not Michigan State, not Indiana, not Ohio State, but some tradition. Certainly. I would say historically better than Iowa. I would say at least at the high points um, or at or the very least on par with an Iowa. But, you know, you couldn't tell by the way the last couple decades have gone. So that's what Ben Johnson's facing. How do I get this program back at least to where it was, where 
you can feel good that maybe half the time you're an NCAA tournament caliber team. Absolutely. Yeah, well, and let's look at their season last year. They they actually were pretty good, and I would say they, they were, and by pretty good, I mean better than probably some people may have predicted. They did. They started out really well, and I think we sort of expect that, that this team would sort of tire out because they were very, you know, they didn't have many players. Yep. They were very, very short bench. They had a, a perfect season in the non-conference. Now, Minnesota does not play a challenging non-conference season. Uh, and of course, since they were lower part of the Big Ten before, they weren't playing the the hardest teams in the Big Ten ACC Challenge. But they beat Mississippi State, beat Pitt, they beat Michigan in the second game of the season in in Ann Arbor, and that was sort of the high point. Then they finished the season to thirteen and seventeen overall, four four and sixteen, same as Nebraska in the Big Ten. Uh, and but I think you know we also agree that their team looked more coherent than than um, than Hoiberg's did at Nebraska, and so. Certainly more uh, reasons for optimism. From Ken Palm, they were ranked 109 overall. They were number 93 in offense, number 153 in defense. Surprisingly, they were top 10 in turnover percentage and shot the three well, but they just really couldn't. um, They just were very small, and they were obviously very thin as far as the bench, and so they just got killed in rebounding, (laughs) except for Michigan State, apparently, because we couldn't rebound against anyone, it seemed. Look, we, we mentioned at the outset that he was handed on the surface, nearly impossible task. He was basically given charge of a program in April that didn't have a real, a real roster. So what he did is he went out and assembled, and I'm being very loose with this because I'm not even sure this would qualify, but kind of a mid-major all-star kind of roster. That's what their team looked like. And I say maybe not even that because I'm not sure that you would take that Minnesota starting five and drop them into a mid-major conference and say, that's your all-conference team. <laughs> I don't know that they were even that good. But that's what he was faced with. And you mentioned an incredibly shallow bench. I mean, a lot of games, they only played six guys. You could say at best, at best, their rotation got to eight. And that's with a couple big men who didn't really play a lot. They really played a core six guys. They had, I know this much, they had four starters who averaged 32 minutes a game or more. Right. That's a lot. At, at a Michigan State, if you have one guy averaging 32 minutes a night, that's a lot. They had four. So one thing that I, I was actually really interested in looking at Minnesota season last year, and it it helped me maybe refocus some of my thoughts as Michigan state fans are, are want to on the issue of turnovers. You say, well, what leads Michigan state year after year to have relatively speaking issues? Some years it's worse than others, but they're never a great turnover margin team. Whereas the big 10 is filled these days with teams that are in the top 10 or top 20 in turnover percentage and Minnesota ended last year, number six, that's how good they were. And you say, well, it can't be experience because that lineup had never played with each other <laughs> right, yeah. before last season. So it's, uh, this is what frustrates. I think Michigan state fans, sometimes they say, well, we have guys who are back for, you know, three, four years who have played with each other over that time. And it's the same problem every year. Why? Well, I think what, what Minnesota last season perhaps indicates is that it's not so much about how long you've been on the roster together, but more 
how much are you playing together in the here and now? Minnesota's guys were all iron men. And when you're playing together that much in that concentrated a fashion and the lineups are consistent because it's basically one lineup that you've got, yeah. that that may in fact be the key. And it's stay, I mean, that makes intuitive sense, right? Sure. Um, and so I think that was a key for them. It's, it's part of what made them surprisingly competitive heading into the season. I think, I think you could have honestly said, and I, and I don't recall for sure. I may have said, Hey, if this team wins a big 10 game, that's success. <laughs> well, they won four of them and they, they beat Michigan by 10 on the road for their first win. They, they pushed Michigan state in a game. I think it was the game at Breslin. Yeah, actually, it was. Yes. <laughs> that they only lost by two. Yeah. And so they were, they were competitive and the main reasons they were competitive is they really valued the ball. So they didn't kill themselves that way. They got shots up and they really shot the three. Well, they had a lot of guys have very productive seasons shooting the three. So those two things are going to enable you to be okay. Even when you do nothing in transition, you don't have a legitimate post threat, you know, um, you don't get to the free throw line very much because you're a jump shooting team primarily. You know, all those things were weaknesses, were issues. But because they shot the three well and because they didn't turn the ball over, you know, they were 93rd in offense. That's not going to be an NCAA tournament caliber team, but it is going to mean that you're probably able to be competitive. And that's what they were. I think the weaknesses were the things that you would expect them to be just looking at their team. They had no real size to speak of. So when you don't have size, it's generally going to be tough to rebound the ball. It's going to be tough to stop anybody from scoring inside the arc. And that's exactly where they struggled. And that leads you to be number 153 in defense. And that leads you to only winning four out of 20 in the league. And I think you definitely saw them wearing down at the end of the season even more than at the beginning, right? That's another good point. That Because of those Ironman minutes, those guys were not the same at the end of February as they were in December. They, the, the tanks of gas had been depleted. I think that's fair to surmise. Uh, but overall, I still think given the nature of the challenge in front of them, you have to be really impressed with the job Ben Johnson did. I thought there was a style of play in place. I thought there was an expectation as to effort and those, his kids met that expectation pretty regularly they played hard. They played competitively. Um, and, you know, if you do that much, you at least won't embarrass yourself. And I don't feel like Minnesota was embarrassing last year. That Their 4-16 and 16 feels miles better to me than Nebraska's 4-16. and 16. Yeah. You know, it goes to show you how expectations can play a big role in that, in, in you know, contextualizing it, right? But, uh, but I think it's true, and I think the main reason is because you don't have to squint to see how a Ben Johnson team might be able to be a lot better than that if he upgrades the talent. Right. And just gets more guys that can play. And I think just to what we were talking about with the Nebraska last, uh, the last episode, it, it's not a, it doesn't seem to be as much of a random sort of um, chaotic sort of style of play where there's, there seems to be no rhyme or reason to how you play one week to the next. And right. so it, you definitely can see, like you said, a master plan is in place, whether it's effective or not successful is another question altogether. 
your your bot your bottom line is you know establishing a standard is is necessary but insufficient. I don't think you can win in a league like the Big Ten without it. But that alone isn't going to do it. You have to have that, and then you have to add good enough talent and enough guys with talent, enough bodies to really break through. Um, but that first half, as we've seen with Nebraska, the first half of that equation is not necessarily a given. So it looks to me like Minnesota has the first part. Now the question is, can they get the second in place? Absolutely. Well, let's look at their the change in the roster. So players lost from last year. Number one would be Peyton Willis. This is the second time with the team he had left and came back. Uh, he's six foot four, played a lot. Well, I should say, ever played a lot of minutes, but he averaged 15.9 yeah. points a game, shot 47, 43, and 63, led the team in assists at four game, and also had a little, almost five rebounds per game. He had a great season. I mean, I, I did not expect him to be as good as he was because I remembered his first go around, he had transferred in from Vanderbilt. Uh, if I remember correctly, and he was okay. He wasn't bad, but I didn't expect this. I mean, 43% from three, he was actually more than just a three point shooter though. He was pretty good off the dribble, did a nice job running the offense on a team that really didn't. I mean, cause Peyton Willis is not an actual point guard. He was kind of masquerading as one, but he did a pretty good job. Um, He's a loss because, man, he did some good things for that team. If I recall, he had some games, too, where he just would not take over, but he would just look really good, and he'd have four, five, six buckets in a row for the team and oh, keep yeah. him in games or bring him back. And I, I mean, he was yep. he was definitely a thorn in opposing defense's side. Absolutely. No, really, really good season. Uh, next would be EJ Stevens. He's a 6'3 guard who transferred in from Lafayette. He averaged 10.2 points a game on 42, 39, and 82 shooting and was another perimeter threat for the team. Yeah, I mean, again, um, another guy came in without a lot of fanfare from a mid-major, and you know, 39% from three is a good number. He was able to help keep defenses honest. As I said, one of the two things that really drove Minnesota's success is that they had a lot of guys who proved capable of hitting threes. And so they found that and they wrote it. And Stevens was definitely part of that. Next would be uh, Luke Lowy. He's another mid-major transfer. He's a 6'5 wing who averaged 8.1 points per game on 40, 33, and 75 shooting. Yeah, uh, not as good a shooter as the first two guys, but good enough to be a threat. And, you know, he brought a little, he played with a good good high motor, um, you know, some physicality to the perimeter group. Um, you know, was a piece that they needed because God knows they just didn't have many bodies. So anybody who was capable of being a 30 minute a night guy for them was valuable. And so he fit that bill. The next player uh, who's left is Eric Curry, a, a guy whose story, I mean, boy, you really feel bad for this kid. He's, he definitely had, came in with all sorts of expectations he had. Uh, and to see him just get in, I did he had one or two ACL injuries. I feel like it was, couple at least yeah two. i was thinking it was two or three yeah i mean yes more <laughs> than you have acls right yeah, i mean he was to to refresh people's memory because it goes back so long uh eric curry was part of their team i think he was a freshman if i remember correctly he was a freshman the same year as uh 
yeah, this would be right. The same year as the Cassius, Miles, Josh, Nick group. And he was a reserve on a pretty good Minnesota team that beat MSU in the Big Ten tournament that year. They, Reggie Lynch was their big man, and Curry was behind him. But Curry really looked like a guy with a future because he was 6'9". He had some athleticism to him, and he also had some perimeter game. I can remember seeing him hit jumpers and say, oh, man, this is a guy who's going to be able to stretch defenses, you know? And um, and then the injuries set in, and he could just never stay healthy. And these were serious injuries. They were lower leg injuries. And that's that's hard to bounce back from. The expectation was going into last season that he wouldn't even play. And yet he did suit up, and thank God for Minnesota that he did. He started 25 games, 7.7 points, 5.8 rebounds, and at least gave them a legit, a guy who looked the part as a five man. And he had, if you remember, he had a game, I believe it was the, it might've even been both games against Michigan state he good. when he wore yeah. us out. Yeah. He looked good. Both those games. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he didn't do that against everybody, but he had enough moments like that, that it was, and again, it's just, it's nice to see a guy able to go out on his terms after going through all that. I was just reading today, actually, when doing some research for this episode that uh, I can't remember the details on this, but he he was recently awarded some kind of Big Ten fellowship um, where I assume he's going to have, given that he played six years at Minnesota, I would assume he's on his way to a graduate degree of some type, but I think this plays into even furthering his education more. So congrats to him. Um, and again, really inspirational to see a guy just battle through all of that and find a way to go out on his terms. Absolutely. Uh, next would be Sean Sutherland. He's a six, five transfer from New Hampshire. He averaged 7.2 points a game in about 22 minutes. So he was one of the rare reserves. So he's at the sixth guy in the, in the rotation. He was shot 48, 23 and 71. Yeah. Not as good a shooter as the rest of their perimeter guys, but somebody had to do had to give them something <laughs> in terms of reserve minutes so those guys didn't collapse from exhaustion and he was the guy and honestly moving up from a program at new hampshire's level to the big 10 and you know being competent they would have liked to be shot the three better but you know 48 percent from the floor overall that's okay so at seven points a game, he definitely contributed. Uh, next player to have left is a 6'9 grand transfer, Charlie Daniels. He worked inside a little bit. He averaged one and a half points a game and 1.8 rebounds a game in about 11 minutes a game. Yeah, I mean, they they just needed, again, they needed a couple bodies to throw in there. It was it was important that, uh, that they have somebody, and Daniels was that guy, not tremendously productive, but he was a body. Right, yeah, when you... <laughs> When your bench is that thin, it doesn't really matter who you have. It's not so much suck up some minutes. Somebody who's breathing. Yeah. <laughs> right. If you can fog a mirror, you got a spot on the team. So next is Parker Fox. Uh, he had an, an ACL injury, really didn't get to play much. And I, this is one of those, I get, boy, I, I feel like Minnesota has a lot of these, these knee injuries. I, they do. And it's, and boy, you look at how their fan base reacts and they just seem, you know how there, there used to be this thing in the MSU fan base that there was a strain of years where it seemed that uh, a lot of guys in the in the off season yes, would have foot right. problems or ankle problems and people say, oh what kind of shoes are they wearing you know all the nonsense you hear when the fact is 
you know what the answer is? Mostly <laughs> shit happens. Right. That's the answer. But, you know, people can't accept that. Well, the Minnesota fan base is on that kind of kick with what's going on with all these knee injuries. So they've now got two guys who missed last year with knee injuries and are now going to miss this coming season with knee injuries. So two years in a row, two guys, that's horrible. You, you feel for them. You feel for the kids and you feel for the program, I guess. Parker Fox, I'm wondering if we're ever going to know what might have happened because this guy was really intriguing to me. He was a Minnesota native, 6'8", 210 pounds, was a D2 player at Northern State. He was a monster, an absolute monster at that level. His last season at Northern State, he averaged something like 23 points, 9.9 rebounds, three and a half block shots per game. First team All-American D2. Um, it was his conference's player of the year and defensive player of the year. A lot of, a lot of potential, so they felt. And, you know, I think in recent years, we've seen just enough guys make that jump because this is something you never used to see happen. Guys coming from D2 or D3 transferring up to the D1 level and being successful. And I hate to say it, but um, the guys down the road with Duncan Robinson, who transferred in from a, a powerhouse D3 program at Williams. I have to say that because my brother-in-law played there, <laughs> uh, but, uh, but they are in fact a D3 power. It's real. He transferred from there to Michigan. And after he found his legs had some success and then shockingly has had some success at the NBA level. And we've seen other guys make this move to varying degrees of success. But Parker Fox was a guy, a Minnesota native that people were really excited about. And he missed all the last season. He's going to miss all this year. When you're talking about injuries to both knees in consecutive years, you've really got to wonder what's going to be left. Uh, but you just feel terribly for him. And, and as a basketball fan, I'm disappointed because I would have liked to have seen what he was capable of doing, how much of that would translate because he wasn't just good at the D2 level. He was dominant in all phases. Just tough luck for Minnesota. I think they probably go away from using flip-flops or their practices. Uh, next would be Isaiah Innan. He's a, a six-foot-eight wing with lots of length and athleticism, and he's out with another with a knee injury as well. Same deal. Yeah. Same deal. He's a holdover from the Patino era. Patino recruited him, but he stuck around. Um, he was an athletic guy. If you don't remember, um, he was, uh, he was an athletic guy who, um, they thought had some ability to eventually be a capable shooter. They thought he had switchability potential as a defender, all of those things. And, um, it just hasn't worked out because of the injuries. And again, with a guy who had athleticism as one of his calling cards, you have to wonder what's going to be left after missing consecutive seasons. And this story is going to be similar to Nebraska's when you talk about returning players. I mean, there's not much, right? Because there are players. Right. Out and, and so it's going to be a fairly new roster construction. Not all, not all entirely by choice because of some injuries, but it's uh, the two players coming back. Uh, one is Jameson Battle, 6'7", 225, uh, transferred from Boston College. And he kind of did everything. He scored a lot of points. He had 17 points a game, 6.3 rebounds, and shot 45, 37, and 76. Yeah, he's really good. I mean, he was the one guy, and of course he transferred from an ACC program, so you would expect he was maybe a little level player. But 
you know, I talked about the Minnesota thing and being able to keep guys at home, right? That's there's a there's an absolutely valid level of criticism that can be directed at that program for missing on superstars, on obvious guys who were McDonald's All-Americans that they weren't competitive with in recruitments. But the other big, big problem is they have been terrible, terrible at identifying the next level down of player. Jamison Battle is a Minneapolis kid. He ended up going to Boston College because, as I understood it, Minnesota didn't really recruit him. (laughs) And then he comes back. And he's 17 and a half point, 6.3 boards, and he's efficient. And clearly, not just a Big Ten, a guy capable of starting in the Big Ten, but a guy who would be a good player for any team in this conference, in my opinion. I was very, very impressed with him. I think he's a true three level scorer because he's tough enough that he can get some. I don't know that he's really a post up guy, but he's big enough he can get some things done at the rim. He's got a mid-range game, and then he's a capable, very, very capable three-point shooter. So, um, yeah, if you're a Minnesota fan, you just have to hope that Ben Johnson is going to at least be better at identifying the Jamison battles of the world and getting them. How does that happen? How does that happen with Minnesota? Because, you know, they had a great history, and then, as you point out, it's been a couple of decades since they've been able to recruit within their state. You see this in other programs, too. You, I mean, Northwestern's different. They don't really have a tradition, so you wouldn't expect to keep a lot of kids from Chicago. But Illinois really struggled for a long time getting kids from Chicago and, and uh, just the state of Illinois. How does, how does that happen, and how does it happen for so long? I think part of it is you have to, you have to hope that, and maybe it's less important now given the portal and what a Wild West environment we have, But if we're talking about the last 20 years where high school recruiting still really mattered and is the backbone of your program, I think having relationships with the people that matter in your state. Look, some of our listeners, I'm sure, are old enough to remember how things were pre-Tom Izzo. If you want to point to one single thing that Tom Izzo changed that had dramatic impact on Michigan State's fortunes as a basketball program, I would say it would be this. The nature of the way he recruited and the importance he put on establishing positive relationships with the people who matter in basketball in the state of Michigan. Judd Heathcote, from everything I understand, just simply did not care about that stuff enough. His philosophy was, look, we're going to be here with or without you. If you want to come, we'd like to have you. We can make you a better player. But if you don't, that's okay. See you later. Judd didn't kiss anybody's ass. He also, frankly, did not work the way, you know, we, we talked about that Xavier Booker. Right, yeah, yeah. right, right. Where Tom Izzo was there every day. Judd Heathcote, Judd Heathcote was known for showing up like once a year, once a summer at St. Cecilia's, which used to be the place in Detroit where NBA players, college players, high school hotshots would all run during the summer. It was the basketball mecca in the state of Michigan. Judd would show up once (laughs) in a summer. So my point is not to bag on Judd, who I do think was a great coach. But um, Tom Izzo has great relationships in the state of Michigan. Now, even he has problems from time to time. You know, we know that there, there are people who are Michigan fans 
who try to create a narrative, et cetera, et cetera. By and large, Tom Izzo does very well in the state of Michigan. He does far, far better than Judd ever did in recruiting. And it's because he's invested the time in developing relationships over decade after decade with the people who matter. Even if he doesn't get a kid, a kid, most of the time, the relationships with that kid's AAU program or their high school program is still intact. You know, I have to assume without knowing all the details of what's going on in Minnesota, I have to assume that many of their coaches they've had have not invested that kind of time. One big difference between Ben Johnson and the guys who were his predecessors. So you go back to Dan Monson. Dan Monson was not a Minnesota guy. Tubby Smith, not a Minnesota guy. Richard Patino, not a Minnesota guy. Ben Johnson, Minnesota guy. We'll see if it matters. But I would think having a guy who's from the state and who has played there, recruited there, now is the head coach there, you would hope that would make a difference. And I think it comes into play maybe sometimes with a kid like Battle not falling through the, the cracks. If you have those kind of relationships with AAU programs, with high school coaches, they may be more prone to hammering you a little bit and saying, hey, you're missing the boat with this guy. And, and you taking them conversely, you as a coach taking them seriously because you have a relationship with these people. You know, I don't know. It, it's a, it's a, it's guesswork at this point, but I have to think they have a better shot to not have recruiting mistakes like Jamison battle happen as regularly as they have over the last 20 years. Well, and you think from Minnesota, it's a lot easier because you're based in Minneapolis. That is where almost all the towns, Minneapolis, St. Paul, the Metro area, right. maybe Rochester. It's all, it's all yeah. within an hour of your campus. I mean, if anyone, if any yep. note, I would imagine in Minnesota basketball, they're, they're truly hometown. They're truly hometown kids. Yeah, and there's no competition, right? There's no other school, state school. Mich- Michigan State just kid, you know, one of the freshmen this year, Michigan State, Trey Holman, right. Minneapolis kid. Now he was highly regarded, but you know, and Ben Johnson was coming from behind on that one, so you don't blame him for losing Trey Holman. Tom Izzo had a multi-year relationship by the time Ben Johnson got that job, but you know, that's another example. They've just continued to lose these kids, and they that has to change, but. To get back to this team, Jamison Battle gives them a hell of a piece to build around. Sure. If you if you had to pick one guy to be your returning starter, he's the right one. And then uh, the other returning player would be Trayton Thomas. He's a seven-footer, 220-pound sophomore. Played some last season just because, well, he had to. Someone had to play. He averaged eight minutes a game, uh, 19 appearances, scored a little under two points a game, and grabbed a little over a rebound a game. There, there's something in the water I guess in Minnesota um, that guys who get to be very, very tall, stay very thin <laughs> and actually play more like perimeter guys than big men. I mean, Chet obviously is an example, but here's the thing I find intriguing about Thompson. So he only took 30 shots from the floor last year. Half of them were from three. So that's 15 attempts. He hit six of them. That's 40%. A seven-footer shot 40% in not a huge volume, but not not nothing either. Um, if he can do that in bigger volume, you might have something because you would presume that he will continue to get stronger and be able to do more around the basket, which he hasn't done yet, but you would assume that will happen. Um, 
but I don't know. I, I've seen some Minnesota fans speculate. They think in time he might even be able to play the three. I, I'm going to hold off on Whoa. that. Um, yeah, I don't know that I buy that. But um, there's at the very least, there's an intriguing guy to work with there for Ben Johnson. Has some elements you don't see every day. So we'll see how he develops. And so new additions to the team. Uh, Darson, uh, Dawson Garcia, 6'11", 230-pound transfer from North Carolina. He's coming back home after being in uh, North Carolina. He averaged nine points a game and 5.3 rebounds a game with Carolina and shot 41% from the floor and 38% from three. Another big guy who shoots the three. Yeah, th- this is, again, I'm getting back to the recruiting stuff. And this is in the um, you can't close on the uh, headline kids in your state. Dawson Garcia, Minnesota native, McDonald's All-American, Marquette beats Minnesota out for him. He played his freshman year at Marquette. So that's not North Carolina beating you. No. That's not Kansas or Michigan State beating you. That's Marquette. Right. And all due respect to Marquette, if I'm a Minnesota fan, that would infuriate me. Absolutely infuriate me. That a mid-level, at best, Big East program is beating me for a kid from my backyard. Um, he did his freshman year at Marquette. He transferred to Carolina. Had a good year. Started a bunch for them. But I think toward the end of the year was, I, I want to say he was hurt. But I think he also got sort of lost in the shuffle. If you remember that Carolina team, they had a lot of size. They played a lot of size. So he was one of a number of big men on that on that roster. So him coming home to Minnesota is a big deal because he's produced some at the at a big time level, but he's unquestionably a major talent. No doubt about it. The only question here is eligibility. It is up in the air as to whether he's going to get a waiver to be eligible to play. That is a huge deal for Minnesota. If they if he does not get that waiver that's a that's a problem if he does get it well they've now got a great one-two punch with garcia and battle as guys who have proven they know what they're doing high level talent i'm going to assume he gets the waiver because who the hell doesn't get a waiver? i mean it's like you think everything's so loosey-goosey now you'd think it'd be an automatic but it's not a, i checked and as of today's date it is not done so we'll have to see but i'm assuming it gets done I guess we assumed the same thing with Joey and it didn't happen either. Right. But that was in a different environment. You're right. But that was, it was even, it was even tougher then than it is now. Yeah. Uh, next would be Taylon Cooper. He's a six, four transfer point guard from Moorhead state. Uh, he averaged 9.1 points per game, 5.9 assists per game and had assisted turnover ratio of 2.72. So very good. Shot 41, 33 and 65. And also had a couple, uh, about three steals a game. Yeah, first-team All-Ohio Valley guy. Um, that 2.72 to 1 assist-to-turnover ratio is his career ratio, by the way, not even just last season. So he absolutely fits that model that they had going last year, right? So that's that's why I have some level of optimism that maybe they'll, even with guys shuffling in and out, a lot of changes on the roster, um, that they may be able – to keep that more or less intact as a point of emphasis. Um, good player does a bit of everything, just not a 
not demonstrated to be a big time scorer, but I don't know that they need that. I think that um, first and foremost, you want a guy as the trigger man who can run your offense efficiently and also give you maybe a bit of a defensive presence to help them improve on that end, which they sorely need. So we'll see. Also, the 6'4", good size for the position, too. So a necessary addition, though, because they, they don't have really many other obvious options <laughs> at that spot. So he's kind of got to be the guy. Next would be Farrell Payne. He's a 6'9", 230-pound uh, freshman from Minnesota. And uh, I guess, you know, he, again, just more bodies that they definitely need. Yeah, they, they like him, though. He's a, you know, the thing about um, Johnson's recruiting this year is the first three guys he got were all Minnesota kids. Now, this was not a year outside of Trey Holloman where there was a ton of headline top 100 talent in the state of Minnesota. They didn't get Trey, obviously. But they did get three guys from within the state that they feel good about. And Payne is the first one and an important one because he's actually physically built to go right away, at least from a strength, a size and strength standpoint, you could drop him in a big 10 game. Now they think, um, he also has the potential to, as we say about so many guys that these days, uh, because of the emphasis on playing away from the rim, they think he's got potential to be an effective stretch player in time. I don't know how much of that he'll do right away. He's the highest rated of Minnesota's incoming freshmen, at least the, the in-state guys, um, kind of a borderline top 100 type. Um, so expect him to play. And if Garcia is not eligible, he's probably going to play a lot. Sure. Maybe even start. Uh, and the last transfer is six, one shooting guard Taurus Samuels. He transfers from the Ivy league school, Dartmouth. He averaged 9.4 points a game on 37, 31 and 81 shooting. And I imagine he'd be sort of the off guard, um, starting guard. If the expectation with Cooper as a point guard, I think it, it depends. Uh, we mentioned this with Nebraska. I think the same thing is true here. It kind of depends on does Johnson want to go bigger? If he wants to go bigger, you know, maybe he starts Garcia and Payne together, moves battle to the three, and then you're you're just talking about Taylon Cooper um, and one other guard. Samuels would certainly be in contention for that, but. Um, uh, not great shooting numbers. And when you're transferring up from the Ivy, that gives me a little bit of pause, but at the very least you could say, this is a guy who's experienced and they need that for the time being. And so I would expect that he will certainly contend for a starting spot, but anyway, you slice it, he's going to play minutes. Another new recruit is Braden Carrington. He's a six, four guard. He was uh, Mr. Basketball in Minnesota last year. Yeah, very, very controversial, I think, around uh, Trey Holloman's camp. <laughs> um, and and this happens sometimes that some states, you know, they'll go with the guy. Oh, well, he's going to Minnesota. So we're going to vote for him. That was what I gathered was the suspicion because Trey Holloman was very clearly the most highly rated guy in the state. And he had a great senior season, but he he'd lost out. Regardless, um, Carrington's a guy they like a lot in terms of his potential. <clears throat> um, 6'4", but versatile. They think he can play some on the ball, probably more of an off-the-ball guy at this stage. Um, and he's got a reputation as a shooter, so they'll hope that that translates immediately. But again, as with Samuels, 
it's hard for me because I, I have to believe Johnson wants to play more people than he did last year. So given that, it's hard for me to envision a scenario where Carrington doesn't play. Yeah, I think you probably could expect to see almost all these freshmen contribute significant minutes and probably depends in many ways and you know how well they do. And you know they may have more minutes yep. by the end of the season. Uh, speaking of that, there's the next one would be Joshua Ola-Joseph. He's 6'7", 210 pounds, who is uh, an athletic wing who has some hopefully some consistent shooting for him. Well, they're, they're, from what I understand, he needs a little polish offensively, but they like his athleticism. They like his size and his frame. So they think he's strong enough to play now and can get stronger uh, maybe in time, like a three, four guy. Uh, but again, another guy that's local, they like not a, not a tremendously highly rated player, but a guy that they like his athletic profile. They like his size. Uh, and his frame, as I said, and I would expect that he'll see some minutes this year. I mean, the only way it doesn't happen is if Johnson, for some reason, decides to go again with like a six-man group. But I just I struggle to see where that makes sense. I, I can't imagine with it would, this team. I don't yeah. think he. I don't think he wants to do that. No, it's not like it was that successful last year. Either. I mean, you know, right? Right. Uh, finally, it's Jaden Henley, six-seven uh, wing, who they got from deep in Big Ten country in California. Right. The traditional Big Ten heartland of Southern California. Uh, Henley was kind of an under the radar guy when they got him. They got him late in 2021. And he hadn't been a guy heavily on D1 programs, radars. Uh, the only other D1 offer he had at that point was from San Diego State, which is a good program. So that tells me there must be something there. But um, again, good athletic ability. They think he in time could be very much a switchable guy, guard a lot of positions, uh, but they think he needs to polish his offensive game. And then finally, uh, a reclassifying player, Caden Betts, 6'8", 210 pounds from Colorado. Yeah, um, the highest rated recruit Johnson has landed in his two years. He's a top 100 guy in the 23 class before he opted to reclassify. So I don't know where he would fit in in 22 if they re if they re ranked, but probably not as high. Uh, but still, a lot of talent here. So the deal with him, obviously six eight two ten has some size to him, but they really like him as in terms of his skill sets. They think he could play either the three or the four, but he can really shoot the ball reportedly. You know, they think he's a good enough athlete. He can do some things defensively. He can do some things as a rebounder. Uh, but the shooting seems to be what they really like. Here's the question. And it's a question every time we see this. You know, we were we were talking about it in the last episode in regard to Nebraska. They had a guy who reclassified last year, was on the roster all season, but redshirted. I don't get the sense that Caden Betts is a likely redshirt candidate. I, I The impression I have here is they think he can help them this season. But the track record for guys like that is very much mixed. So that's ultimately where I'm at with Caden Betts. Definitely a prospect who looks intriguing, pretty highly regarded. So you like all of that. Is he ready to help? And what is the plan? Again, my impression is they plan to play him. If that's the case, is he really ready to help at a Big Ten level? You know, we'll see. There's definitely would seem to be minutes and a role available if he's if he's good enough. Um, it's not like he's got, you know, two fifth year seniors at him. Yeah. But but 
is he ready to help? And if you're, if you're forcing minutes on him before he's ready to help, do you have happen what happened to Christian Lander at Indiana where he just never figures it out? You know, that's the risk. I, I would say this, the one, I don't want to go too far with Christian Lander comparisons because part of the problem there is you were talking about a point guard. Yeah. The bets is not going to have that level of responsibility thrust upon him. When you're playing the positions he's playing, it's probably a little easier to make that transition mentally. You have a lot less on your plate. Yeah. You're, yeah. When you're not directing the entire offense and everything rests on your shoulders, certainly the, yeah. it, even if you make mistakes, it's not as uh, grievous as it could be <laughs> if you're all by yourself out at the, at the point. So then when you look at it, Minnesota in total, I mean, I think, you know, as we're talking about them now, you can definitely see that they're moving in the right direction. I mean, you feel like there's momentum uh, that they've started to at least handle what's going on in Minnesota, pull those kids into their program. And then they were pretty successful considering they had very little to work with last year. So you got to expect that they're going, that they're probably two or three, you know, two, maybe three years away from being pretty competitive. I mean, I think that's probably your hope if you're Ben Johnson and Minnesota fans. That would be a safe projection. If I were a Minnesota fan, though, I, I go back to the Steve Peichel example, and it would probably be a similar one that I would impose on um, uh, Penn State's program as well. Because you're building from nothing, you say, okay, probably four or five years in total to really get this thing. And that is exactly what happened with Pykele. It was year four that I think they broke through. Um, but that's in part because there was no tradition. They had no consistent recruiting presence, even though they were in a great talent producing state. Rutgers was not even an afterthought for the, for the best or even the second tier necessarily of New Jersey guys, Penn state, you know, the state of Pennsylvania, especially outside of Philadelphia, doesn't do a hell of a lot in terms of basketball talent production. It's not great. And there's, again, no tradition. And they're, you know, even with a Philly guy and Pat Chambers, yeah, they got some good players out of Philadelphia, but it wasn't like they were picking and choosing. There's a lot of competition. Villanova, Temple, other North Carolina, yeah, right, yeah, yeah. Dukes, et cetera. Very tough. Minnesota is different. Minnesota, if you had, and I don't know yet whether Ben Johnson's the right guy, but if you have the right guy who is from the state, has those connections, those relationships built up. If I were a Minnesota fan and you were trying to sell me on, hey, it's going to be three more years before we're competitive, I might not like that. I especially might not like that in an environment where you can supplement your roster via the portal which is different than even what Steve Peichel was facing in the early days of his program. You know, it's changed that much in the last couple of years. Post COVID, we are in an entirely different environment, not only for reasons related to COVID, just that was the time. Yeah. Of it, you know, so I don't know. I don't know how I'd feel about that. I think that what you said is a safe way of looking at it. And you would hope for Ben Johnson's sake that that's how the administration looks at it. it says, Hey, we understand we had bottomed out. It's going to take a little while for you to find your sea legs here. But, you know, basketball was a different sport than football. Basketball, you land the right guy or two, 
and your fortunes. Again, we're not even talking about title contention. We're just talking about when can you be competitive? When can you think about, hey, if enough things break right, we could be a tournament team. You know, we can we can aspire to win half our games in the league, you know, that kind of thing. Um, I might I might think that that time frame wouldn't sit. It wouldn't even maybe sit right with Ben Johnson, but we'll see. I think that um, his recruiting looks okay. It's too early to judge because he just hasn't had the time yet. You know, I think next year's class, the 23 class, that's where you're going to start to be able to fairly evaluate what he can do. But I think getting a kid like Betts, who wasn't even a Minnesota kid, was pretty highly uh, regarded in his class. That's a positive sign. The fact that he did get three Minnesota kids. Okay, that's something that they weren't doing with regularity under Patino or Tubby. So you would hope that he's guessed right, that despite the fact that none of these guys were considered surefire, you know, stars that he hits on a couple of them at least. Um, but that's, what's going to come down to. I am impressed with what he's done in terms of establishing standards. As we keep saying, the unknown is, can he hit that next step of the equation, which is upgrading the talent level enough to where that's going to matter because that is necessary. And so you're picking, you're picking them 13th, which is no different than last year. They, uh, which your expectation would be, I guess, maximum five, maybe six wins, but probably more like where they were this year, four or five. Yeah. Somewhere in that range is what I would expect. Uh, the reason I'm picking them above Nebraska is very simple. It's assuming Garcia plays the combination of battle and Garcia is heads and shoulders above any two man group. Nebraska can roll out. I mean, Nebraska's two best players, at least in terms of proven production would be Walker and Wilcher. Well, Garcia and battle Trump, those two guys sure. pretty easily as a matter of fact. So, you know, Minnesota's got some question marks here. There's no doubt about that. But when you've got two guys, the caliber of those two players, you know, I would say pretty much every night that gives you at least a puncher's chance to compete. They won't get it done most nights, but it gives you a chance to have two guys you're running out there on a nightly basis, the caliber of battle and Garcia. So that's why I've got them. Hey, Minnesota could even top this. I mean, the next team we're going to do spoiler alert, Northwestern. Um, I don't know that they're really any better than Minnesota. Minnesota could finish 12th and it wouldn't shock me, but I'm being conservative with it. I've got them where I have them now, but that's the reason why I've got them above Nebraska. Right. Is those two guys primarily. And in some ways, the difference between these teams is pretty small. You know, it could be a fluky shot yes. here, there, and it could, you know, it could be two spots in the standings in the end. Both, both of them have serious questions at the point. You know, I, I, I actually like Minnesota's potential answer a little better. Um, both of them are going to be running out a lot of guys, as we talked about, a lot of guys that weren't on the roster last year are going to be playing this year, a lot of them. So how does that all work? There's some similarities here, but I just I just think Minnesota is a shade better position. And that's all that's going to separate a lot of these teams probably when it comes to the end of the season. Right. Just a little edge. Yep. yep. Uh, so again, I want to remind people, if you have not had the opportunity to join our community at tffinots.com, 
You can go sign up to be uh, a member on our message board. We have lots of lively discussions that will become livelier as we get closer to the season, obviously. Uh, you can also email us to join the competition to beat Rod to do a better prediction from 1 to 14 uh, in the uh, Big Ten standings. You can Winner will get a t-shirt and also an opportunity to be on the show at the end of the season. You have to submit your entry before the Big Ten season starts, which will be sometime in mid-December. Again, that would be a T-F-F-I-N-O-T-S at gmail.com. If you've not yet subscribed to the show, please be sure to do that. And continue to share the show with your friends and other Spartan fans. Leaving five-star written reviews helps other Spartan fans find our show. Until next time, the final four is on the schedule. Go Green! For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.